0: empire podcast this week we go totally nuclear with christopher nolan and talk all things oppenheimer we're also trying to interview laura mcgann director of the deepest breath while holding our breath turns out that is impossible so don't try it at home all this and more on the movie podcast that is losing our damn minds over this week's new releases hi barbie I mean, hello, Pod. Uh, I'm Helen O'Hara, once again standing in for Chris Hewitt, who is taking care of business elsewhere today. I'm also bereft this week of Jem's Dyer, who is currently in a deep swoon after finally securing tickets to see Taylor Swift in concert next year, because I know you were all very, very invested in that drama. But fear not, for I am still joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up is a woman who's living a life of blonde fragility. It's Sophie Butcher.
1: Hi, Barbie. Hi,
0: Barbie. <laughs> 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 How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. You're, to be fair to people, you're, you're not entirely blonde, You have, but you have I very do, cool blonde streaks. So. I do,
1: and the blonde is growing out, so the fra- hopefully, maybe, does that mean I'm getting stronger? Or more fragile? Less, know. Yeah, less fragile, I guess. I, I feel very fragile. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the thing that you had before it then became a thing is the slightly, like, black mirror, Joan is awful, yeah. like, front nice. blonde bits. Yes.
1: I did have that before. Before it was cool. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm getting rid of it. I believe it's old you. news.
3: It's all a bit of a contrast though when you turn your head a bit and then click your neck, like you what? just did before we started. So he just cracked Why her
2: neck like she was about up? to smack down a bunch of fools in a corridor in a big
0: Hollywood <sighs> fight scene. Look, yeah, There's no need to talk about her hobbies like that. If she wants to smack <laughs> down a bunch of fools anyway, ahem, let me just introduce who else is here. Mm. Uh, we also have a man who anywhere else would be a 10, but sadly he's here. It's Alex Godfrey. How are you doing?
3: <laughs> Nowhere would I be a 10, but thanks. But anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, we've just been talking about my smooth radio voice
0: it's very smooth i
3: didn't know existed until
0: about two <laughs> minutes ago which is
1: not his normal voice
0: is it's it? not it's not not your normal voice but it's like it's like enhanced i, yeah, mean,
1: normally I don't normally you're yelling across the office so this is like slightly different
0: right <laughs> neck clicker <laughs> wow I, I don't feel like that's a diss that's really going to catch know, like, on
4: okay. yeah.
0: <laughs> and finally you've heard him already we have just Ben and he's enough. And he's good at doing stuff. Oh, I
2: really appreciate that.
0: <laughs> you, you got sort of the nicest
1: bit? one. <laughs> yeah, I
2: feel, I feel good.
0: <laughs> I we were
3: insulted.
0: I was just going through all the lyrics. That was the best I could come up with. I'm sorry. Those are <laughs> lyrics from a song in Barbie, guys. So yeah.
3: you know, Is there a Barbie film out?
0: I know. It's been pretty quiet. Mm. You might not have realized.
3: Did not know that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, how are you all? You all good? All
2: good? I'm good. I was up close and personal for James's victory in the Taylor Swift ticket saga, which was even just like the secondhand stress emanating from that situation was considerable. Mm-hmm. had almost as much of a blast radius as the uh, Oppenheimer test <laughs> run. So uh, I'm, I'm relieved. I think we're all relieved that James got those tickets. Yeah I was everybody there for the moment of everybody
0: in the office just to be clear was was lying on mattresses on the floor with their hands <laughs> over their heads
3: and sun cream on just in case just in case yeah.
0: you know you can't be too careful
3: I think it's why he's not here now he's still recovering
0: <laughs> He is I said he's in a deep swoon yeah. ever since <laughs> <laughs> All right let's uh, let's get this show on the road god help us all time for a question should we do a question
2: Is it do you guys ever think about dying, dying. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Never um, and this one comes from Jake Stillman at Why Do I Have TW on Twitter, saying, In light of Barbie, what is one movie that made you cry that you least expected to cry in?
3: Well,
2: thank so, you. So spoiler like you're there, on the some people
0: of- cried in Barbie.
2: Yeah, but Barbie is surprisingly Mm. emotional and it didn't even take that long to get emotional. We're going to talk about it in the review, but there's a point not too far into Barbie where it was like, oh, this is already pulling on some heartstrings in the way that Greta Gerwig absolutely can, which I guess I I don't really have an answer for this in terms of stuff that you wouldn't expect to cry in. I don't have anything that's really, Mm. you know, caught me completely off guard like that, but Lady Bird destroys me every Mm. time. The end of Lady Bird... When uh, Saoirse Ronan, uh, Ladybird, ladybird, Christine McPherson, I think her non-given to self name is, when she gets to New York, spoiler alert, and she calls her mum and she speaks to her mum on the phone and it's the whole monologue of, do you remember the first time you drove around mm. Sacramento? And her looking back on this place, this time in her life that she just couldn't appreciate it at the time. And you never do. You never appreciate that stuff because you're already just ready to go to the next place. And then when you're there, you realize how special the previous thing was. And that that conversation, like that, even talking about it now, I can feel <laughs> the, the goosebumps going. So I, I don't think Lady Bird is an unexpectedly emotional film, no, but that that not. does very much get me. Yeah. In terms of unexpected, I mean, we were all expecting emotional stuff from Guardians 3, but that is probably the most recent one that has hit me, um, mostly on a second viewing. Mm -hmm. But again, it's at the end when Dog Days Are Over kicks in. The combination of joy and bittersweetness of an ending and a song that was like massive for me at a certain time in my life, all of the combination of those things... The second time around, I just really let it like wash over me, and I just let go. I was on my own in the cinema, or well, not an empty cinema, but I hadn't gone Did with you anybody hire it else. Out so you could cry. <laughs>
5: yeah. much, that is
2: very much recommended. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. for bits of Guardians three, that was the last one that kind of really
3: got me. But we were expecting some sad stuff from Guardians. Exactly. 3. So let me try to correctly answer the question. Um,
1: You're all right, Alex. <laughs> really
3: combative. I think he heard you cracking your neck and was like, "I'm in for a fight here." Yeah. I'm- actually scared of both of you but um <laughs> i think i have a, an answer which is the first time i saw paranormal activity
1: <laughs> Ooh, okay okay and i
3: saw it i didn't see it at the time i saw it, i think a few years later with my then girlfriend and we watched it together at home and i was trying to be a bit a bit cool maybe and a, a bit impervious to all this because i'm sorry it's fucking scary that film. it's it a really real scary. and i didn't like Blair Witch, I, I, I discovered years ago that s- scary films kind of could make me cry. So I'm not... Mm-hmm. It's not out of emotional. pure fear. Yeah.
2: Wow. So wait, hang on. So you went into this like, I was trying to be kind of tough and then ended up crying out pure terror. Yeah, so, so she, terror.
3: she was... My girlfriend was, like, terrified and I was having a bit of a laugh because I thought, haha ha, you're really scared and this is just a stupid, stupid film about doors closing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Something happened, probably on, you know, the uh, in, in infrared. And I was so frozen in fear by it. And my physical response was to silently cr- sob. Oh, and makes... I, I sat there and I, I was just, just quietly, quietly crying. And I was like, it didn't make me jump. Mm. It didn't make me scream. Just made me weep a little bit, and that, <laughs> that's a quote for the poster right
6: there.
2: Oh. It, one and, one of those adverts where it's like, "Here's how audiences reacted to paranormal activity." <laughs> There's everybody jumping and throwing their popcorn in the air, and then Alex just, just silently weeping <laughs> in the corner. I
1: don't, I,
3: I can't imagine I'm alone. I mean, is that such a weird response?
1: To, well, to... sorry, my answer is actually horror films, mm. um, but okay. not not out of um, fear. It's more like. Horrors that have an emotional undercurrent yeah. um, seem to get me and that's my, I mean I cry out a lot of films but it, in terms of unexpected crying that's probably, I actually saw Talk To Me last night um, which is out next week but that's quite an emotional film and it wasn't even a sort of cry inducing point in it that kind of got me and I was like starting to well up, I was like I don't know why I'm reacting in this way this moment <laughs> in this film. Um, but the one that's hit me the hardest in that way is Relic, which was out a couple of years ago, 2020, mm. I think. Um, Natalie Erica James, I think, is the director. Um, and it's about it's a horror film about three generations of women that end up living in this house and taking care of uh, the grandma, like the oldest one. And it came right after my grandma had had a stroke, which was in COVID year, and it was just a terrible time. And it's a really it's a a good but kind of standard horror film. Um, and then at the end it takes this really sort of whiplash turn and I absolutely sobbed I remember it was I was it was my first London film festival and I was um watching it remotely because it was 2020 so I was just watching it at my desk in my bedroom just like open mouth sobbing at the ending of relic <laughs> and I was like this is just a horror I'm really but it really got it was a lineup of personal things and seeing it in the film and it was just, it was... It is
2: really powerful that that is like an existentially upsetting ending to the film. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um...
3: You and I should get together and watch some horror
2: films yeah, and, and cry. Yeah, But I think
0: that there is something about just the intensity of the emotion sometimes, yeah. just yeah. needing to come out somehow, you know. And if, especially if you're trying not to, actively trying not to jump and not to scream. <laughs> it's
3: going to come out of another hole. It's going to come
0: out of another hole. Yeah. <laughs> what a lovely way to put it.
3: I will. Yeah. I, uh, so, another one. So, I think this sort of half answers a question, half doesn't. But um, Ben, I've discussed this with you recently. Mm. For, for family reasons recently, I have, let's say, I've discovered the joys of walt disney's frozen which <laughs> i had not seen before a few months ago and guess what it's it's good it yeah, turns it's out a, it's frozen good. who knew good. it's a good film with some good songs <laughs> which i am have been ob- obsessed with since watching it in yes. november i think last year and it's on one of our family playlists in the car as it needs to be and listening to those songs all the time. And, yeah, I think I, think I told you this, Ben. Do you want to build a snowman? Mm-hmm. For me, it's... I mean, that has become my kryptonite, like, almost daily. It's its almost up there with the end of ET, which destroys me.
0: Oh, even reliably. Thinking about it, yeah.
3: Even thinking about it. But do you want to build a snowman? I, it's such... It's like an that one song is like an opera. It's so it starts off so youthful and joyful and innocent, and it ends up in complete lonely tragedy, and the arc of it is so clever. Beginning that song and ending it with the same lyric with completely different meaning. And like years in between and lives lived and people dead. And when it gets to, I mean, I cry for quite a bit of that song. A lot of it is because I know what's coming. But every time it gets to that line at the end and I mean, I don't need to go into the details. I imagine most people listening know
0: know what it is. (laughs) And you're not going to quote it because then you'll burst into tears. (laughs) I'm
3: getting upset thinking about it. But it's so incredibly written and conceived and performed. Like that song is an epic little story and when it gets to that final line i am inconsolable um and it's almost embarrassing but it's true It'll it's like the
2: deteriorating deteriorating relationship between two sisters
3: in the wake of their parents death mm. as a song about snowmen
0: yeah that is that's oh. the power no, but it's like, I okay mean,
3: let's it's, so the final line all she wants she wants her youth back and her happiness back and her sister back and she's got nothing and she's got no one and that's in a Disney film and I can't get over
0: it no in fairness okay I agree and I'm going to lie it because that song is not the one that you necessarily expect to set people off in yeah. Frozen. Um, so I'm going to allow you to say that, but you can't say you didn't really expect Heroes in a Disney movie because come on. I mean, Ben, as our local expert on this, you know, practically all of them have a moment where you're like, oh God, that's yeah, so sad. A, lot it really
2: dead parents, La- a lot of dead parents. A lot of dead sad parents. goodbyes. Yeah. Fox and the Hound, no one ever recovers.
0: Oh, I, I'm still not okay. Please don't bring it they up. They
2: still market, like they do T-shirts and badges and stuff of um, Fox and the Hound using the... We'll be friends forever, won't we? Spoiler: They absolutely will not.
3: <laughs> so you, <laughs> you can you can spoil that now, I think. But Frozen, can, can we just do a little bit more on Frozen? Let Let It Go as as well, which you know is this big cathartic song about freedom, mm. really, sung by a woman who's in complete denial, has built a fortress for herself and is like now the loneliest woman on earth and pretending like this is what I always wanted and you know and that you know and she sings that that ends with the cold never bothered me anyway Anyway, and she she turns around and sort of does this little smug little smile to the camera but you know she's completely lying to herself and again this is the other sister she's got no one she got nothing she's on (laughs) her own I mean, are you I
1: OK, mean, Alex? No, I'm
2: not <laughs> OK. So, I'm not OK. This Can is I-, <laughs> I love that this is being recorded on the podcast. because, As Alex says, we've had this discussion yeah. before, but it mostly came out of me seeing Alex in the office in the morning and being like, hey, man, you're right. And then it kind of led into this.
0: <laughs>
1: no, I'm not. Um, no.
2: To, to jump off your Frozen and sorry for taking over on a Disney friend, but but Frozen 2 Oh, I'm in the go. kind of Frozen Two over Frozen camp, and I think that also has some <laughs> like, that's really not a camp, complex. It's just you, I think.
0: <laughs> Come no, join there me. is there is a small a small camp. Like we're not talking Glastonbury here. Do you know what I mean? We're talking like <laughs> one tent, like tent. one yeah. local a one local camp. count uh, yeah. scout tent kind of thing. <laughs> that
2: dynamic, I am absolutely used to. I, that is, I'm comfortable there. Um, <laughs> You're not in life, but the, the, then Frozen Two has the opposite of that, which is the emotional outpouring of reconnection of Elsa's big song at the end of that film. Show yourself where she kind of then discovers the true extent of her power by basically reconnecting with the memory of her mum and mm. in this fucking glacier or whatever, a river of ice <laughs> fucking she's glacier. singing and then she's harmonising with her mum's voice in the glacier And then there's an incredible bit of animation where Elsa sings, I am found, and she's kind of singing it to herself, but also to her mum. And the expression on her face, uh, her eyes are like welling up and it's like pure emotional outpouring. That is pure kryptonite. Mm. As is then the unexpectedly Like, sad song for me at Frozen 2, which is one of the opening songs, Some Things Never Change, which is like a jaunty number about like tough as well. uh, Anna is absolutely not ready for anything in her life to change. She can sense everything around her, and Anna, Anna, I can't bring myself to say Anna because
0: Anna sounds like not wrong. That's what her name is. Well,
2: but she, she is not ready for anything in her life to change, and she can sense that it is but she's trying to hold on to the things that she thinks won't change but everything that she's singing about that she's like this is never going to change is already changing and there's something about that that just really gets me i think it's <laughs> the, whole, so as the well. whole sentiment
3: of trying to hold on to things mm-hmm. as they are yeah that gets me that's more interesting actually because that that is not on the surface and obviously emotional song but the undercurrent of it gets through to you Sophie, which song from Frozen <laughs> oh makes you an absolute
2: mess?
1: <laughs> we did have a question. It you're, wasn't this. You're not something very quiet. I've never seen Frozen. <gasps> well, not oh, Frozen I, Sophie. two.
3: Welcome. Do it. Um <laughs> I'll I'll say one other one other film. Um Helen, you you, you can join me on this one. Um, yeah. and uh it is it is emotional. So it's supposed to it is supposed to make you cry, I think, if if you if you invest in it, but are you there god it's me oh, margaret okay all
0: over the place,
3: yeah. i it's my mission in life to get every single person to watch this film and i'm only saying i think this kind of answers the question because it is ostensibly a film about a 12 year old girl and i don't want to spoil the very ending because it's a real kicker of an ending but um it's quite it's 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 kind of a, a joyful ending but there's so much again catharsis and release in it and it Really, really got me, and I watched it for the second time recently. And it got to that point, like it does at the end of ET. I knew it was coming, mm-hmm. and you get emotionally like primed for it. You almost get the the pre tears. You know it's coming, and still, I sort of like minorly broke down. And if if people, if you haven't seen that film, it's an incredible film.
0: It's a great film. I think that that for me, the, the ending of that is is probably. It feels somewhat similar, and I can't explain how, but it feels somewhat similar to the hug at the end of Paddington 2, which I think is the greatest hug in cinema history. And um, the line. It's just yeah. happy birthday. Oh, God. I, mean. just, I can't even. We can't can't go into that. It's just too much. But um, but I feel like, like I may be expected to feel, certainly, going into a Paddington movie mm. like I expected that. Um, The one that comes to mind for me, and this is, you can mock me for this. That's okay. I I deserve to be mocked for this. I watched one time me and a boyfriend of the time sat down and watched Forrest Gump and we'd both seen it before. Mm. And I don't know what it was in the air that time. Maybe the police had been tear gassing people nearby. I don't know. But we were both inconsolable. At. At the end, it's the bit where he asks Jenny if his son is smart. That always gets it's me, just because that. it it shows a level of self awareness that he hasn't always shown in the film, and it shows that he is aware that he does have things he can't do and things he doesn't understand, and it shows a, an a, an awareness of his own limitations and a hope that his son doesn't have them, and it just destroys me. And then and then it's him putting the boy on the bus and then just sitting down to wait for him to come back. Can't
3: I can not. hear your voice I can't even do now. it.
2: I nearly cried when they de-gumped Bubba Gump Shrimp, the restaurant in town. Oh, oh. That is but a sentence I didn't expect. It to is hear no today. longer Bubba Gump Shrimp. It is now merely shrimp and grill, which...
0: Why would what's you even that? the point? I mean, what's the point? What's the point? <laughs> I guess it's one of these things where people nowadays maybe don't remember or haven't seen Forrest Gump, and therefore they thought it wasn't a selling point anymore. But yeah, what's even the point? And I'm, then there, I there might are films cry
3: at the phrase degumped bubba gump <laughs> <laughs> Degumped bubba bubba gump shrunk.
0: And this is not even <laughs> to, to This is not even to talk about the films that are guaranteed to make people cry. Like yeah. absolutely without a question, every single time. I will cry at E. T. obviously. You have to. <laughs> you have to. I will cry at Star Trek to The Wrath of Can. Not sure. Every single time.
2: Oh, I've got one. I've got one. On its 15th anniversary, uh, Mamma Mia. <laughs> it's like the wildest. Well, honestly, if you've never seen Mamma Mia, if you've never got drunk with a bunch of friends and watched Mamma Mia, I, I cannot implore you enough to do that. It is an incredible, wild ride of a film that is just so wacky and off the charts. I don't and it's, think I'm do It runs by its own <laughs> internal logic. And then there's a point like two thirds of the way through, Where
0: (laughs) where an actual human emotion happens. (laughs)
2: Where uh, Pierce Brosnan, I think, starts singing When All Is Said And Done. And they do it as this, like, sort of warm, among friends... Look at it, we're all together in this like acoustic style and that that gets me a bit as well because the song is amazing and it is done in a really lovely context. Oh my god, the end of Mamma Mia, here we go again. Oh, When Cher god.
0: turns up, I was just over the moon at that. I mean, I was
2: crying with laughter at that point. But, but the, the, it the it was going to the ghost Spoilers, the ghost of Meryl Streep turning yeah. up uh, in the church at the end. Oh god. Yeah.
1: If, if you talk about crying with laughter, <laughs> I've got some of those. Yeah, please. Uh, when we watched Fall before the Oscars last yes. year. So it was me, Ben, and Ben's wife, and Sam, who was helping us cover it. And we were all in hysterics at that
2: film. Which one's Fall? Uh, fall. Oh yes, the
1: Two Girls well, on public Tower.
2: Why? Because it's rubbish? No. Because it's actually it- <laughs> really good. It's very well done, but it's it's in a certain mode for a while. It is like survival thriller, big wobbly tower. You kind of know what film you're watching.
3: Like 127 hours
2: sort of. Like. <laughs> yeah. Thousand miles up a big tower. Right. <laughs> and then <laughs> the film takes a twist or a turn in its last twenty minutes. And I it saw it on Gogglebox.
1: Absolutely batshit.
3: Gogglebox ruined it for me.
1: Oh, mm. okay. Well, I just want to say, if it, I haven't watched Mamma Me with friends, but if you want to watch uh, Fall with drinks and pizza and a gang of friends, you'll have a great time and you'll cry. You'll cry, possibly the- with laughter, possibly with sadness. I don't know.
2: I think it's sheer the sheer audacity yeah. of the, the vulture moment is what we're getting. at. Okay. If you've seen the film, the moment with the vulture, we were all. Screaming! None of us could believe what we were seeing no. because it was such a pivot from where the film well, had been at that point.
0: If you want crying with laughter from Audacity, the answer is Mother, Darren Aronofsky's Mother.
4: Right. When oh, I okay. when I
0: figured out what that film was doing, I I genuinely had hysterics and and couldn't stop laughing until about you know like I was on my way out of the cinema and still sort of wiping tears from my eyes. That <laughs> that slayed me.
2: When the brothers come in. And you go, Oh, I see oh, what I this see is. Now. I see who those brothers are meant to be. Yeah. And then the film just gets wackier and wackier, but in a in a quite a serious way. It's like seriously that, wacky.
0: Yeah. I think it's trying to be. Anywho, <laughs> um, okay. I think that's that it. Anything else? Anything else that you unexpectedly cried at, apart from, of course barbie <laughs> no all right it's
3: enough tears for today.
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you'd like to have your question read out on the empire podcast and answered with the same level of expertise and insight as we just showed you can get in touch with us via twitter using the hashtag empire podcast or wait for a panicked shout out on a thursday as usual or in this case it was a non-panicked one last night i just want to make that clear i did a non-panicked well done, shout out however. amazing Shall we have a guest? Mm, Yes. Let's do it. So Laura McGann is an Irish documentary maker whose latest film is the brilliant doc, The Deepest Breath, which premiered at Sundance earlier this year and drops on Netflix this week. It's an extraordinary story about freediving and the crazy things that that sport does to your body, culled from footage and interviews taken all over the world. So we sent Chris along to talk to her, or rather Chris sent himself, but you you know what I mean. Please enjoy Laura McGann.
5: Hey everyone, it's Chris here, just jumping in real quick in the editing booth to tell you that you probably shouldn't listen to this interview with The Deepest Breath director Laura McGann until you've seen The Deepest Breath on Netflix, because we go into major spoilers for the film. I also talked to Laura McGann about some of the filmmaking choices she made, the stylistic choices she made, and the structural choices she made in telling the film's story. So... You should go into the film as cold as you possibly can and then come back and listen to this. Even though it's not a spoiler special interview per se, we do touch upon some of the major incidents depicted in the film. Okay, there we go. Here it is. Laura McGann. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the director of the incredible documentary, not incredibly boring, Laura McGann, which is what (laughs) you thought I said when I walked in the room (laughs) earlier on. We got off on the wrong foot. We did. No, we definitely (laughs) did. How are you?
4: Great, thank you so much for having okay. me, Chris. Why
5: is your documentary so incredibly boring? <laughs> it's just nothing, not my first happens. Question. <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing happens. Nothing happens. But it, it's an astonishing, astonishing story. And how did you how did you stumble upon it? How did you find it? The story of of, of Stephen and Alessia.
4: I actually read about Stephen and Alessia in the Irish Times um, back in 2017, and I didn't know what freediving was. So I went to my laptop. I said, "What is freediving?" And I was just presented with these incredibly stunning um, visuals uh, and of people swimming underwater with no oxygen tanks for ages, holding their breaths. And I thought, what is this? Like, I love Blue Planet and all these underwater things, but this looked different. This was shot differently. It was moving differently because it was shot by freedivers holding their breath. So they weren't, you know, laden down with scuba tanks either. So there was just a an ease of movement under the water that I'd never seen humans do before. So so that immediately I was like, this is something that I've never seen before. And it's not every day you kind of come across something so new like that. Um and then I learned more about Stephen and Alessia. And that's when my heart really just kind of felt like it was connected to to both both of them and and finding out little by little this story by like pulling little thread and like this other world would open up and um, and really speak like. Also, it's a testament to how open the community were. Like, I reached out to people who were posting kind of photo essays. Dan Verhoven is a photographer, and he was f- posting things, and I uh, reached out to him, and immediately, like, the whole community wanted this story to be told. That's kind of why we've we've managed to put a s- film together that's got like almost forty years of archive mm-hmm. comes from you know, and then. Like we shot a lot of recon as well, and like yeah. filmed all over the world with them, um, with people who were part of the story as well. So, um, yeah, it's been a massive uh, team effort.
5: So you so see, you're you're making your way in the, in this in this world in this community, and you're a complete newbie. Mm in that regard. Uh, and you said already that they welcomed you with open arms yeah. and this was a a story that they wanted to be told for 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 obvious reasons as well. Um I think we can we can talk about mm. you know um, what happened to Stephen. because mm. um, obviously it's a huge part of the of the film. But that that warmth that enveloped you as you were making a documentary that you know might have been rejected by by certain quarters or Certainly asking difficult questions, I'm guessing, yeah. as well. Yeah, very much. Of what happened. So, yeah. But you never, it, it was it was warmth all the way and, and open arms. Like
4: really, it, yeah. it actually was. People wanted Stephen's story to be told. Um, he had touched people, like every, a lot of people felt like he was their best friend, you know, or he left a lasting impact on them and, or he had saved their life. Mm. That's another thing. I had an awful lot of people saying, yeah, absolutely, because I wouldn't be here without Stephen. So when you're making a documentary about someone who has saved people's lives, you've got people queuing outside the door to be interviewed, and that's really where we, that's what we were—the position we were in.
5: That's what because he was a safety diver, and
4: he was a safety diver. So the athletes, you know, when you when you watch free diving online, like um, or in real life, uh, it's it's it has been kind of up until now like all about the safety of the diver. Divers trying to go to 130 meters, let's say, not many do, but some do. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a safety, first safety, second safety, and then you have surface safeties and God knows more people like medics and, um, more people on the, on the surface. Um, and really it's all about the safety of the athlete and where you off, where people will be more likely to black out is in the last 10 meters before they surface.
5: that that was wild.
4: Because your lungs compress as you go down and then as you go up, they get bigger again. And your brain realises that it doesn't have as much oxygen as it thought it did. And then you can have what's called a blackout. And Stephen's there. So if you blackout at 10 metres or 2 metres, he's there. He'll grab your nose and keep your mouth closed. He'll kick with his legs up to the surface and bring you up. And he'll kind of blow on your face or tap your cheek. It's called blow, tap, talk and talk to you. Um, wow and then he will bring your end so like he's been sa- he's been safety for five or six years at, at the some of the biggest competitions in in the world with the, with the most elite athletes so and you'll see in the film as well there's you know we see another couple of different situations where Stephen does save people's lives yeah. um and he actually saved Alexis's life as well yeah. um and, and so, yeah, when you're making a film about somebody like that, um, yeah, people want to, people feel um, a lot very grateful and feel a sense that they want to celebrate this person and have, you know, um, tell a story.
5: Stephen died, saving Alessia's life. Can you talk about approaching that, depicting that, knowing when to show it, how to show it, all the choices that you make as a filmmaker at that point? That, that, that can't have been an easy thing to, to approach.
4: I spoke a lot about this with uh, Peter, Stephen's dad, and um, we had, um, you know, Steve, Peter's obviously watched the film a long time ago and he watched it with us on Sundance, but we had a screening in Ireland um, the other day for Stephen's friends and family and Peter came along. He didn't sit in because he said, I've watched it enough now, that's obviously um, fine. Um, and he said, you know, people talk about Stephen like being a hero and And he was like, he wasn't, you know, he died, he didn't die a hero. He died just doing the right thing. You know, so many people die doing the wrong thing. And, and, and Stephen died doing the right thing. And, and that's why, um, you know, he, and he's proud of him for that, but he doesn't want to, he's not holding him up on a pedestal either. You know, he did the right thing. Um, and so, And all along the way, you know, I've been, as I was making it, feeling like the first audience for this film is Peter and Alessia. And so I need to kind of, and from them, I drew so much wisdom, you know, from the way Peter was thinking about his son's life and his son's death and how Alessia was dealing with the guilt of someone giving their life for her um, and so there was these, it's a very, comp. There's a lot of complexities in that but one of the things about Stephen's life is that like he wanted to go out and be in the world, to learn about the world, to feel it, to experience things, you know, he didn't shy away from, you know, he headed off into Africa on his own, you know, in his early 20s um, and he got to know people and he shook hands with people and he just like, you know, he 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 went all around Australia, he went all about around Asia and he just went on his own. He didn't really have a plan. He just kind of like wanted to have his feet in, in the, you know, in the ground and just feel what it's like to be in these different places and off into the wilderness and um, all these kind of things. And I felt like I didn't want to tell a story, you know, with these glasses on, lenses of this person died and this is how they died. I wanted to do, to, I thought like it would be more respectful to Stephen and the way he lived to actually go on the journey with him, to experience it with him and to not be looking at it as a sad story, but looking at it as a story of adventure and of fulfillment and of like simple but beautiful and profound pleasures and loving, the love of nature and connection with people. Um, and there was only one way to do that. So structure in the film in a way where we are, we're not looking back, talking about what happened. This, you know, we're in the moment experiencing it as it happens. And so, you know, people keep asking me about the structure of this film. It's told chronologically. Now it's got beginning, middle and end. And, and that's kind of how how it happened. And that's kind of what we do in the film. Um, And so... We see Alessia. So in the film, Stephen and Alessia are, you know, I always do this, this is a podcast and nobody can see me, but my hands are going forward and then like joining up. Mm. We see Alessia's and Stephen's life just slowly, slowly come together and they come together and then they have the time together. And then when Stephen passes, that's when their journeys move away from each other again. And that's when we see Alessia.
5: Uh, I think people will listen to this after they've seen the film, hopefully. and so hopefully they'll have the same questions and thoughts going through their head as I, as I did. I was floored by the introduction of Alessia because she, obviously she's a presence all the way through the film. But I have—I was—I was watching it going, "Oh, she hasn't participated in this, not not officially," and then you show her right at the end after Stephen passes, and it is extraordinarily moving. And I think that speaks to structure questions and, and the decision to, to do that. Why did you hold back, hold Alessia back for that moment? Looking straight to camera, just so much guilt, pain on her face. It's an incredible moment.
4: Yeah, there's two reasons, I suppose. One is that we had this audio that. Uh, a man, who, Peter, Stephen's dad, his friend is a radio producer, Michal Holmes. And Peter asked Michal years ago, would he record an interview with Stephen because he's some great stories? And Michal came back and ended up doing like 13 or 14 interviews with Stephen all an hour long each. So we had all this audio of Stephen telling his own story. And like that was the opportunity where I thought, well, maybe this can be in the moment. And in order for it to be in the moment, we had to treat Alessia in the same way. So we have Alessia's audio as well. And I suppose that enabled us to tell the story in a way where you don't know what happens at all. Um, But also, in the moment, going to the moment where we do see Alessia, one of the really important things that I wanted to bring across in Alessia's story was that she has to carry this now for the rest of her life and that this is a heavy thing to hold with you every single day and and I needed people to see that that like she this is like a there's lots of different ways you could describe it you know like there's an absolutely like a survivor's guilt um there's heartbreak there's and and I felt like she deserved to um to have me show that because you know because it's her truth and it's what she's living through it's what she's carrying around with her you know she's she she's a wonderfully resilient incredible woman. she's so strong she went to 123 meters a month ago yeah but she does carry this all the same you might look at her and think god isn't she great she's doing great she is doing great but she's still carrying this and i wanted to show that because it's the truth
5: yeah it's amazing uh but on that note laura again uh i will let you go thanks chris thanks so much indeed
0: okay time for some movie news what's been happening in the world of film this week
2: Well, not a huge (laughs) amount. We covered the beginnings of the strike last week. When we recorded last week, we were in that kind of hinterland, knowing that the industry was basically about to shut down um, with the five o'clock cut off and now we've been living in that world for a week and true to everybody's word pretty much everything has shut down there are a small handful of independent films that have been allowed to continue production under SAG rules but there's been some interesting kind of ramifications of the actors and writers strike so for instance, at the weekend, Disney still held its Haunted Mansion premiere, but instead of having celebs, <laughs> it had like Disney characters, people in Disney costumes walking the red carpet, plus director Justin Simeon was there. But that was just weird seeing mm-hmm. photos coming out from the Haunted Mansion premiere. And it's like Cruella DeVille's on the red carpet, <laughs> as ever, wearing puppies. Naturally. Boo. Um, Boo, down with that. Uh, so that we're starting to see a couple of just weird little wrinkles coming out of this already.
0: Yeah, it's a very strange time. The uh, talks have not resumed. The um is still not actually talking to the guilds, as I understand it, as of certainly a tweet I saw this morning. From Cargill? Uh, from Cargill. I see Robert yeah, Cargill, the writer. Terrifying. Um So th- there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of movement so far. And there have been reports of rather... Um, uh, strange behaviour, let's say, outside studios. There's something going on called Tree Gate that is far too complicated to explain, but uh, I do recommend looking it up because it's got some crazy uh, stories attached. But yes, it, the, the the strikes continue and um, there have been a lot of stories coming out, none of which, I have to say, make the studios sound good. One of the exec producers on the Umbrella Academy reported today that she was, basically within a few months of that premiering on Netflix, she was driving a lift. <laughs> To make money, um, which does seem a bit crazy.
1: Mm.
2: Kimiko Glenn as well. I was just
1: about to talk about this. So it's been something that I got sort of dug into. Was it at the weekend when she shared all that stuff? She'd put, I think she'd put out a while ago a video of her residuals check. So this is Kamiko Glenn who was in Orange is a new black. Mm. She came in, she played Sorcerer. She was in like the later season. She was in about two or three seasons. She was a main character. And um, she showed like a residuals check, and it was like, Literal sense for like all these episodes of this very successful show, and the result at the end was like I don't know, two, $27. $20, $20 $27, yeah.
2: $27 was the residuals um, check for yeah. being a major player yeah. on one of the biggest, longest running Netflix
1: shows, yeah. And um, she kind of started sharing, she was talking about that, but I also read the piece, I think it was in the New Yorker, which was about yes, um, the, 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 the whole Orange is cast New of Black Orange cast, New yeah. Black, and, you know, it was a pioneering show. It was in Netflix as just as it was starting to create its own content. It had an incredibly diverse um, cast of women. And um, a lot of them were uh, losing money, paying money, paying out of their own pockets to be on that show, um, not being given what they were worth. And it just sort of shows that this kind of pattern from the streamers has been there from the beginning, it mm. seems like. And it's not something you expect from a show that was so huge and so... You know, it seems yeah. they haven't come very far since then. It doesn't seem
0: great. There was also a report: Mandy Moore today, yeah. one of the big stars of This Is Us, which yeah. has been one of the big hits of the last few years. Mm. Her streaming residuals uh, came in at sometimes a penny or cent or two cents, zero point zero three
3: or something. I mean, so this is big star, crazy. and this big, big star, show. Big, show, big show, big hit, yeah,
0: and nothing, and nothing. Well, uh, in, I mean, uh, uh, you know, she's not crying for herself, but she's saying, you know, obviously she's doing well, okay in other in other spheres. But at the same time, that is that is unreasonable, it seems to but me. A, a bit,
3: but also, I think we should note that a lot of these, you know, more well-known actors are doing this for the sake exactly. of all the ones who aren't, who don't have the sort of money that yeah. they have and yeah. they're under the same conditions. Exactly.
1: It's not for them, it's for the people who aren't the lead. They're guest stars or they're recurring roles, but they don't get into um, being a series regular and so they're... You know, uh, blocked out from getting health insurance and all that stuff. It's all the actors on the side. It's not, mm.
0: it's yeah. not the
1: big ones, and it's and the big ones standing up for the yeah. rest,
0: which is a good thing, which, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right, there were some trailers this week. At least mm-hmm. did you did you see any of the trailers? We had Haunting in Venice, which uh, once again looks super scre- creepy as Poirot films go. Have not watched it yet. It
1: looks real creepy.
2: It's the exact opposite. If you think of the opposite end of the spectrum of enough champagne (laughs) to to fill the the nail. nail. (laughs) It's the exact opposite end of the spectrum to that. Tonally, atmospherically, it still kind of looks like a conjuring movie basically
0: it's really does it really
2: reminds me of i don't know if any of you have seen ouija origin of evil the mike flanagan (laughs) ouija prequel
0: sadly no i haven't i do like mike flanagan genuinely
2: is is great it's really really good if you like mike flanagan stuff um you'll watch that and be like oh this is absolutely a mike flanagan film but the kind of setup for that is a family are basically running a seance grift Uh, So the mother is a medium and the kids are kind of in on it and she kind of welcomes people in and kind of helps them get emotional catharsis, but basically is getting money out of them through this elaborate kind of setup that she has. And it seems like... Oh, oh, and and then somebody actually gets possessed. The daughter actually gets possessed. We've all been there, haven't we? Um, Whereas A Haunting in Venice, it seems like Tina Fey's character is kind of recruiting Poirot to say there's this seance stuff happening and I'm super smart and I went to see it and that I couldn't figure out what was actually happening. And it feels like it was kind of real. Poirot, you go and check out this seance and you're smart. You can figure out how it's done. And then while he's there, again, he maybe is caught up in how real this thing actually could be. And on top of that, there's some kind of murder, possibly by a ghost child, Mm. question mark. Mm -hmm. So it's, is the seance real? Is there actual spooky stuff going on? Also, who's died? They kind of don't reveal in the trailer who's died, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also have not to figure out who done it, if who not it. spooky spirits.
0: My money right now, having not read the book, and I want to be clear in case I'm right, I have not read the book. I know <laughs> nothing. I think it was Tina Fey. Probably Ooh. was. I th- I,
3: th- I do think after two of those Branagh Poirot films, which should... Are- pretty similar to each other I think it's welcome that he's doing something different Mm. with them because if there was just another razzle dazzle
0: yeah Mm. then
3: I don't know how
0: I I just hope we learn more about the backstory of the moustache this time fingers crossed
3: yeah (laughs) Yeah. Um. Tash is very much back (laughs) trailer I uh, was excited to see was the holdovers Alexander Payne of sideways fame (laughs) teaming up with Paul G. again I don't know why I'm doing it Wow, it's it like
0: rhyming why am I, love I, it. why, why am I rapping?
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the, the slowest, slowest. <laughs> rap ever Someone put a really low, slow beat on this We'll, we'll lead lead it up to. in the edit, right? <laughs> so uh, this is The Holdover It's set in the 70s It looks like a 1970s film It's Paul Giamatti as, guess what? A cranky, um, older teacher Wow,
0: it must have been difficult for him to get in character He's never yep. played anything like that exactly. before
3: Exactly, <laughs> at, at a college um, Stuck there over Christmas Um, supervising uh, one of the students who can't get home and um, Buddy Comedy might be maybe overstating him but it looks like they're going to be just stuck there with each other having maybe escapades and heart-to-hearts and all sorts. And for anyone as borderline obsessed with Sideways as I am, just Giamatti and Alexander, completely obsessed. Um, Giamatti and Alexander Payne doing a film together again. I can't wait to see it. All right. Does Paul Giamatti have a... Parrot sidekick like he had in Jungle Cruise? I, 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 no, I don't think so. And they're <laughs> holding that back from the trailer. Yeah. Was that one of the high points of Jungle Cruise? It really was. There was also
2: a man made of bees. Um. <laughs> And other non animal related characters.
0: <laughs> and, the, and and when the uh, my favourite thing about Jungle Cruise was when it started and, you know, the the score starts and you're sitting there watching the pretty pictures of the Amazon, the establishing shots and listening to the score and going, Wait isn't this Metallica? And it yes. was. <laughs> yes. Anyway, and um, also, you know, in terms of um, you know debunking um, psychic nonsense uh, this week, there was also a trailer for Simon Pegg's new film, Nandor Fedor and the Talking Mongoose, which
2: possibly best title of the year so far.
0: It's. I mean, somebody's going to have to go a long way to compete with that one. I mean, Mission Call on Impossible dash dead reckoning comma part one is fine and all but it, it does it have a mongoose in it it does not
3: it's very Simon Pegg title like all the weird little films he does in between the, the big films all have like very long weird titles
2: very
0: weird, weird title. I mean look fair play to him like he's keeping the weird title industry alive it's and fun. I think we can all get behind contract,
2: that contract yeah and yeah, in this, he seems to be some kind of detective who goes to the Isle of
0: Man. Correct.
2: Not White? No. Uh, Isle of Man, where a local village has this whole thing about a talking mongoose. And he turns up like, surely this is... You, you're you all committing to the bit here. There can't be a talking mongoose. Uh, but all one of the things I know about this film is, and they tell you in the trailer... Is that it features the voice of Neil Gaiman as the mongoose? So now I am questioning. <laughs> You're
0: whether, questioning everything.
2: Questioning everything. Can the Mount mongoose actually talk? Is there going to be just a you know an affectation of the film that they got Neil Gaiman to voice the talking mongoose in a mystery film starring Simon Pegg? I'm in. Yeah, I'm there.
0: It's it's definitely a thing that's happening. I'm I'm excited to see it, mm. which could be fun. There's also the new Illumination film Migration. It's about ducks. Yeah, I mean it's fine.
1: I actually laughed several times in that trailer. I thought it was kind of cute. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Kumail Nanjiani yeah. and
0: Elizabeth Banks voicing the leads in that one, and with Aquafina I think as well, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, and uh,
2: wait, is Aquafina voicing a bird for the yes. second time this year? For the second
0: time this year, Mermaid, yeah. yeah. She has locked down that bird corner of the market.
2: She did quite a good job in type cast. the Little Mermaid of kind of her croaky voice kind of sounding like squawks. She did that a lot in The Little Mermaids. So.
0: Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I, I read and enjoyed this week was uh, the news about Aquaman 2. Did you guys see this? So Aquaman know. 2 has been through three rounds of reshoots, apparently, and has been test-screened exa- uh, exhaustively, which is not unusual for this kind of film. Maybe the three rounds of reshoots, but not the rest. Um, but also what what caught my eye is the fact that, it, reportedly, they had shot a scene... With Michael Keaton back when he was going to be the new sort of Nick Fury of the yes. DC universe, and then they decided not to do that post um, Bat Woman, Girl, Bat Girl, and took that out and replaced it with the scene with Ben Affleck as Batman. And now they've taken that out as well because James Gunn and Peter Safran don't want to promise uh, mm. a future that they they don't plan to deliver. So apparently now no Batman, I'm I so guess. Tired. in. Aquaman and The Lost Kingdom.
2: Which, you know, the first Aquaman was fun because it was like 10 films in one and it was completely out there and wacky and at a point where DC was still relatively in a self-serious mode. I think it was post Shazam mm-hmm. and obviously post Wonder Woman, which was great. But generally, the the overarching feeling on DC stuff was that they are kind of a bit serious and dour. And Aquaman absolutely wasn't that. But in the five years since that film and with this sequel coming out there have been so many regime changes with
0: I think everything three DC. different regimes since this went into production
2: it feels like uh, if you've watched the american office and you can picture steve carell saying snip snap snip snap <laughs> in re- response to the vasectomy that he has had and unhad yeah. and had and unhad many times uh, for his partner then it feels like they're basically doing that but with with batman and with how this film is going to connect to one the wider. Vasectomy. Yeah, it's, they've had like a Batman ectomy. <laughs> and then oh, no. a Batman re ectomy. Oh,
0: no. Oh. oh not a no, rectomy. No.
2: Stop it. <laughs> <Of> course not <laughs> But there's no Batman, then there's a Batman, then it's a different Batman, and now there's no Batman. A rectomy. Oh, no. I, I, I don't know whether
3: you are, Alex, Hell but that's meant to no. you. <laughs> um What? <laughs>
0: Oh, God, there's parachutes and knapsacks.
2: Basically, I, I hope that the film is good because James Wan is good. Yes. He's coming off the absolutely batshit malignant. And he, he did some wacky stuff with the first one. I hope it doesn't get bogged down by whatever's happening in the wider mm-hmm.
0: universe. And the first one, lest we forget, is technically... And actually, the highest grossing film of the whole DCEU. a
2: billion dollar movie.
0: Anyone who had predicted that on paper back in about 2012, I mean, you should have won a lot of money. That is, nobody saw that coming. But that is the case. So it is weird to me that they would feel the need to put Batman in a sequel to it. If anything, they should be putting Aquaman in their Batman films. Anywho. Um, We we haven't talked about the best trailer of the week. Please tell me more.
2: The second trailer for The Creator, the Gareth Edwards original sci-fi movie, his sort of comeback post-Rogue One, which was seven years ago now. Crazy to think. Wow. Everything went
3: just fine for him on that film.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely fine. He was not, you know, having a tricky time on that. No problem. But it looks like The Creator is going to be a really interesting film. This is starring John David Washington as a soldier who is hired to take out the AI superweapon uh, that they think is going to end this war between humans and robots. And he gets to find the weapon, and it's a little kid. It's a little robot kid. Oh, no. And he's like, I can't kill a little robot kid. And so they kind of go on the run together uh, against this vast backdrop of this conflict between humans and robots. AI, androids. So it kind of feels like a little bit of a mix of it. Visually, it feels reminiscent of bits of Rogue One and bits of Star Wars. Tonally, it seems like it's going to be halfway between his kind of big-scale Godzilla Rogue One stuff, but also the personal story amid mm. a big backdrop of monsters which yeah. if you've never seen monsters that is an astonishing debut from him it really is um sounds a bit so, last of us as well a little bit last of us mm. sort of a parent and kid dynamic yeah. uh in it, this big sort of apocalyptic future it looks great
6: looks yeah.
3: like a really good film i hope, I hope it is armando Iannucci, yeah is doing a stage show of dr strange love which makes sense. Has that
0: happened? Does it make if, sense? Yeah, <laughs> because it's
3: you know, you can see it. That's
0: Well I mean, hopefully when it comes out. Yeah, I mean look,
3: it's a <laughs> lot of it's a lot of people talking in rooms mm-hmm. and but you know, exquisitely designed rooms which, you know, I even that I I want to go to the war room and see it. And as we know, Peter Sellers played what, three three characters in that film, and you think um, Steve Coogan has done a lot of work with Armando Iannucci, maybe, and loves Peter Sellers. You know, you can't... I mean, it's going to have a good cast.
0: Yeah, He's an incredible
3: well. writer and director. And um, what an exciting theatrical happening to be uh, happening. <laughs> <laughs> I think...
2: That
1: was Alan Partridge of <laughs> you.
2: <laughs> the, the Death of Stalin really makes me believe that Armando Inucci could do something like this and, mm. and you know, tap into the deep, dark, political yeah. side yeah. of Doctor Strangelove, which beneath some of the kind of wacky laughs is a real existential doomy mm. comedy.
0: It would it's- make a great double bill with Oppenheimer.
3: Mm. Mm. Oppenheimer's not very funny.
0: No. But Doctor Strangelove is funny. And on average, they would be like a normal level of funny.
3: <laughs> For two stories about
2: bombs. For
0: two stories about the end of the world or possibly not.
3: I mean, it's totally up his street, material-wise, yeah. Iannucci. That's what I mean. You can absolutely see him doing that. You know, you can just, your mouth waters the, the, the prospect of who might be in it from some of those films. Jason Isaacs. Get Jason <laughs> yeah. Isaacs in oh, it, exactly.
0: Yes, and then give him a coat a he can coat. shrug off. <laughs>
3: yes, Um, can't wait
0: can't wait that is going to be the next Taylor Swift tickets when those go on sale I'm just saying that is going to be a big deal Uh, big day in the office (laughs) all right I think that's it for movie news Um, anything else we want to mention Ben we have um, I should remind people we talked about it last week but um, Empire will be live again at this year's London Podcast Festival in King's Place on September the 9th Um, so if you haven't booked your tickets yet please do so I believe there's somebody else earlier in the day kind of morning time like
2: if you really enjoyed that bit where we just waffled on about Frozen for quite a bit and Mm -hmm. you'd want to hear people talking about like animated films yeah, I guess films. so. Disney, I guess yeah, maybe be... in this quickly, Shrek. If you hey. wanted to hear people, I don't know, talk about Shrek for an hour and a half.
0: They could do that in the morning, maybe.
2: They could do that at what, like 11.30 on Saturday? Something, something like that. September. Then go for
0: lunch, maybe visit some yeah. of the exhibitions I was talking about. You know, just have a nice time in London and then come back if in the only evening. that was happening. For an Empire <laughs> Live podcast. So if you haven't been bought your tickets yet, please do so at once. I feel like James would want me to also mention that there is going to be a pilot live, which is on August the... That's on Saturday the 19th of August. Saturday the 19th of August. August. Pilot 250, if you haven't bought your tickets yet for that, please do get after that. That's going to be a big one. We hope hope the (laughs) actor Strike hasn't affected it too much. Um, But uh, but yes, so those are coming up. So uh, do bear that in mind. Otherwise, I think we're good... The magazine is just going to press, so it's not out for another couple of weeks, right? I haven't forgotten anything there. Yes. Okay, good.
1: Just to say, uh, if you want to get your tickets for the live shows, go to um, our Twitter feed or our Insta feed, and the same for Pilot, because there's post there with the link. Uh,
0: Yeah. Or kingsplace.co.uk will have links as well to all of those. Okay. Hey everyone, it's Chris again, just
5: jumping in real quick to tell you that kingsplace.co.uk is the place to go for yet another incredible event that Helen didn't know about when she recorded the podcast yesterday because it hadn't been confirmed. And that is, I'm very, very excited about this, a live Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 spoiler special interview with writer-director Christopher McQuarrie. Yes, indeed, folks, this is going to be the culmination, we think, of our epic Dead Reckoning Part 1 sit-down. Part 1 of that, all 5 hours and 44 minutes of it, is going to be out next week, Wednesday 26th of July, for spoiler special subscribers. If you don't already subscribe, go to empire.supportingcast.fm. We are recording Part 2 next Friday, July 28th, and then in the evening, because... We won't be sick of each other by that point. I'm sure we're going to retire to King's Place for a live show. Tickets have now gone on sale. Kingsplace.co.uk. It is going to be absolutely incredible uh, and very reasonably priced as well. It's just £12.50. I cannot wait. Cannot wait for that. It is going to be epic. So once again, kingsplace.co.uk. If you want to see me, Talking to the man they call McHugh about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Well, let's be honest, I might get a word in every now and again. All right, back to Helen. Enjoy.
0: Shall we have another interview? Yes. 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 Christopher Nolan, for It Is He, needs no introduction. You know he's the director of the Dark Knight trilogy and The Prestige and Inception and Interstellar and half of your other favourite films. And he is, of course, back this week with Barbie... Sorry, Oppenheimer. The story of the man who built the atom's bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to end World War II. And Alex went along recently to talk to him about nuclear war and A-list casts and what else did you talk about?
3: David bloody Bowie.
0: David Bowie.
3: It was unexpected. Okay. But- have a listen. Folks.
0: Have a listen, please. Enjoy,
3: Christopher Nolan. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Empire Podcast.
6: Afternoon. It yes, is. it is. I I confused. I'm confused. Yeah, I'm on weird time zones. But yes. I know. Are you jet lagged? I'm sort of beyond that. I'm just sort of <laughs> beyond know, the, the usual bone tired and enormously stressed. You know, woe is me. I've got a big movie coming out. And it's yeah. very frightening kind of mode.
3: But it's a weird time. Um, last time you were bringing a film out. Mm-hmm. The industry had shut down. Cinemas were closed, and yeah. then you waited patiently for them to open again. And now the industry is potentially about to shut down again. You find yourself yet again um, on the brink of.
6: Well, yeah, I mean, very different situations, though. I mean, I'm, yeah, uh, you know, with with the COVID shutdown, you know, all theaters closing all over the world. You know, I mean. Yeah, what an appalling thing for for everybody and for the, for the business. But you have to keep a sense of proportion. You know, there are people in the world, of course, with with real problems. And in the case of the impending, you know, SAG strike on the back of you know my guild, the Writers Guild, already having been on strike for two months, um, we're very lucky in that our work is finished. It's about to go out to the world. Um, it's really the people who uh, aren't able to be in work right now or haven't been able to for for months that are suffering. But it's. You know, it's an important moment in our industry, and significant changes have to be made to the way in which uh, the working members of our guild are paid, and uh, yeah. yeah, that needs to be done. Oh, it's been a long time coming, and um, mm.
3: I mean, the industry is moving so quickly, so fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, absolutely. Um, so congratulations on this film, which I saw um, in
6: IMAX in the Science Museum, which is mm. a beautiful cinema. Have you been in there? Oh, yeah, all the time. Oh Really? And yeah, yeah. I, I lobbied them very hard to keep the film projector in when they renovated. And they've, they've just reopened oh, really? the this yeah, year. Yeah. And they kept it in, so we we're able to screen on film there, which is great. No, I, it's a site of annual pilgrimage for whatever Star Wars movie or whatever was coming out on,
3: well, it's, on it, IMAX. It's a wonderful screen. I'd been to various IMAXs in London, but I hadn't been to that one before. and I was just, Oh, yeah. Oh, no, it's a great one. No, and I was just saying um, I think I'm – my hearing has suffered as a result of seeing a <laughs> My
6: bones shook,
3: um, which you're probably pleased to hear. Very pleased to hear. <laughs> I mean, not that
6: we're wanting to physically damage you, uh, but no. It, it's the great thing about IMAX is, other than the the architecture of the theaters and and the specificity of the, you know their commitment to quality being the driving force behind the brand which is a great thing for, you know, filmmakers. Yeah. Um, yeah, the fact that they're, you know, playing the mix in the right way and, and when everything is being presented in the right way, uh, you know, that's, that's great and reassuring for filmmakers. Yeah.
3: Well, I, sh- I should just say, I mean, I'm sure everybody listening to this knows by now what this film is, but um, the clue is in the title. It is about Robert Oppenheimer who spearheaded a nuclear bomb. And... Um, it's been. I, I think it's somewhat genre-defying as a film. It's been called. It's been called a thriller. It's been called uh, a horror to some degree. And something that struck me quite early on, because I think there's a, a lot of things going on mm-hmm. w- at the same time within the film. Um, one of the things that got me quite early is that it's kind of romantic as well. I'm not talking about the personal mm-hmm. relationships in the film, but his approach to what he does is all-consuming love and obsession for science and physics and his work is is so overpowering. And there's a sequence quite early on. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful work you do in the film where you visualize what's going on in his head. And um, the way you present him reacting to that, for me, it was almost like he was swooning. It was like music to him. And I thought the, the, there's, there's a romance between him and what he does. Is that something that you were sort of looking to accentuate.
6: I mean, yes. I thought of it more in terms of almost fear. There's almost a, there's an adversarial relationship with the the imagery at first. And then really, I think through the influence of Niels Bohr, you know, as his kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi or whatever, you know, he's, he, there's a kind of acceptance of his own power. Yeah. Um, the thing about quantum physics that, that you don't need to know watching a film, but because uh, it's not a film that that tries to explain quantum physics, other than to say these guys were looking at the world in a revolutionary new way that was mystical, mm-hmm. that was like magic. And so we first meet him as almost you know an apprentice magician or, or something, somebody who's I think slightly tormented by this, and then learns to love it and learns to love his power, his power of visualization, because. And he does fall in love with it. It is romantic. He's he's, um, mm, mm. he's learning that he can look into dull matter, everything, the world around us, and see energy, and energy that ultimately can be released. Yeah. And with the imagery, with the sound and the music and everything, we're trying to establish that thread as a threat, as a joy that runs through his life uh, an instability, a vibration that increases at times and decreases at other times, you know, this knife edge of tension that he's on, and finds its ultimate release and expression in the most destructive way imaginable, which is the first atomic bomb. Yeah.
3: It's not a biopic, even though it covers a huge amount of his life, mm. sweeping over the years, decades, really. Um, it doesn't feel like a biopic, and I don't think it's presented
6: with any of the conventions of a biopic. I will... Well, I, interrupt you there to just, it's a point of interest to me because I think the biopic doesn't really exist as a genre in a strange way. In other words, if a film successfully gets across somebody's story, whether it's, you know, Lawrence of Arabia or in a fictional context, Citizen Kane, or whatever, yeah. nobody calls it a biopic. So biopic is almost the terminology that, that we use for the set of Formulae or whatever that yeah. sometimes people use to try and help them through the story. And when we looked at that, when we looked at how you address that, the, the formulae uniquely in genre is completely unhelpful. <laughs> Which is, it's an unusual thing, but but I enjoy that because I like playing with genre. I like playing with the expectations of genre or using the expectations of genre to shift you one way or the other. And so for me, I always saw Oppenheimer in the spirit of. Those great films of the past, like you know Lawrence of Arabia or JFK or Susanne yeah. or whatever, where you're just you're just telling a very compelling story that's centered on somebody, yeah. And you're, you're kind of in their their world. But as far as genre goes, you know, you've pointed out the romanticism of the beginning. It's an origin story. It's a sort of origin myth at the beginning. But then, to me, the bulk of the film in the middle becomes a heist movie. Yeah, you know, this is about this extremely exciting. Let's put the team together. Let's pull this off against impossible odds, this race against the Nazis to harness the power of the atom. Yeah. And then the last third of the film, which for a lot of audiences I think will be the most surprising third of the film, it becomes essentially a courtroom drama Mm -hmm. and hopefully a very suspenseful one. And so it's that mixing of genres that, that... I get excited about But I railroaded your question. No, no,
3: that's completely true. I've, and I find that fascinating because what you're what you're saying is right. I just think something feels like a biopic when it falls into the obvious conventions of what we've come to know as a biopic, when it's a very chronological cradle-to-grave situation. Exactly. Now, I've always said to people, well, really, um, Scorsese has done biopic. I mean, Goodfellas is arguably a biopic. Raging yeah. Bull is arguably a biopic because they don't seem like it. And you never call them that.
6: Yeah. Unless they leave you unsatisfied in some cinematic sense. Yes, yeah, exactly. So the, the, it's less a genre than a pejorative for sort of nice try. <laughs> you know, and I, it's it's unique in that. Uh, you know, a great horror movie is a horror movie. You know, a great science fiction movie is a science fiction movie. Yeah. But a great biopic becomes something else. It becomes an adventure story or a thriller or, you know, any, any one of the, you know, whatever you call Regible. I don't even know what you call Regible. I mean, a boxing picture, right? Yeah. It's its own genre. But um, I just find it really interesting that that, Uh, you know, that particular description. And you never really used to read it so much. It's terminology that's come in. It's a much wider use in the sort of, I don't know, consumer press, if you like, in the discussion around films, really in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. It it used to be a bit more sort of insidery, you know, studio kind of terminology. Yeah.
3: Well, it's interesting
6: talking about all this stuff with that context.
3: there's, There's a sequence. It's maybe an hour into the film. And I don't want to
6: give away exactly what no the spoilers. Is. Please, no, no, no spoilers. I, I don't want to give any Weird to talk about spoilers in a historical film. No, I
2: know but, but, but it's, still, people don't
3: No, but it, it's a it's a small moment that has a lot of weight. I think, and like I say, I mean, stop me if you think I'm giving away too much. I I, I don't think I am. But there's a point where he takes off um, some of the clothes he's wearing, and then puts on the clothes he feels more comfortable with, mm. and you see him in what have has become sort of Oppenheimer's signature outfit, which we've seen on the poster, the suit and the hat. And the way you present him and film that sequence, to me, there's a mythology about it, you know. That you're oh, yeah. treating him sort of mythological and mythologically
6: and you nomi- can say it. He's a superhero. Well, I've, had, I've had years dealing with <laughs> the genre. I know I, wasn't I know it. how to shoot that scene where, you know, the costume goes on for the first time. And it's a very, very Yeah it's a very self conscious reference. And it's there for a very, very important reason, which is that Oppenheimer more than anybody else, understood the power of his own iconography. And he created it. Mm-hmm. there's a moment it's not in the film, but there's a moment after the war, when uh, one of the scientific publications, I can't remember if it was the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, but one of the the publications printed a photo on the cover that was just his hat and his pipe on a piece of machinery. And everyone in the country, they all knew who that was just from that. Um, In his own way, he had become as iconic as Einstein. And he was very, very self-aware about how he did that.
3: Right. That's fascinating. I mean, I wasn't going to go so far as to call him a superhero, but it's a hero moment in the yes, film. Yes,
6: totally. And and he, this is the thing. He understood the power of theatricality, iconic power, mm. how it could give him a stronger voice, how it could inspire people and give them a focus in the Manhattan Project. And he carried it on in later years because it granted him uh, a louder voice in the debates about the consequences of you know the stuff, the stuff that, yeah. that he'd been involved with.
3: One of, one of the many ways in which this film is so cinematically effective is that it seems to—I mean, maybe it's a bit of an illusion because obviously it does slow down here and there—but um, it feels like it sort of never stops. You know, you're, it's constantly moving. You know, mm-hmm. it's constantly feeding you things. There there are different timelines happening in quick succession all the time, mm-hmm. um, and you're not—I don't think you're playing with time in some of the ways that you've done before, but. Yeah, you're telling – you're showing us multiple timelines at the same time, but you're telling one story. It's threaded through the whole time. There's a cohesiveness to it, which I found really fascinating. And it reminded me in
6: a slightly strange way of – did you see Moon Age Daydream, the Bowie doc? Yeah, I actually saw it and and loved it. And I saw it right as we were finishing our film. Oh, really? And I felt exactly what you were feeling, which Mm. is that there is this impressionistic and prismatic – quality exactly. to, the, yes. to the presentation and even some of the way in which she used the imagery, some of the sort of astral imagery and some of the mm-hmm. you know. Uh, no, I, I actually completely understand that connection and yeah, I felt good about that because I enjoyed it. I, other than I'm a huge Bowie fan, I enjoyed that that film, you know, Brett Morgan's film tremendously and anyone yeah. who hasn't seen it should definitely see it. Yeah, But I also felt that for me to feel that the film I'm making about Alperheimer has some... I mean, I wouldn't even call it stylistic, but like some kind of emotional resonance with something as completely different. Um, mm. That gave me confidence that we were doing something sufficiently cinematic or sufficiently uh, immersive or not just exposition. You know what I mean? We're not just dealing with the facts of the story. We're trying to create a world and create a feeling. Yeah. Um, it also slightly amused me because I had for a long time with the wardrobe guys and with Killian, I had two pictures of one of Oppenheimer um, standing and lecturing, you know, at the end of his time at Los Alamos, one of David Bowie in concert with the same pair of enormous trousers right, <laughs> thin white duke. Yeah. Here, and the trousers are gonna have wasted up, you know, right below the ribcage and, and massive and gargantuan and, and shoe covering. And I, uh, you know, I kept showing these pictures to firstly to Killian and, and then to Wardrobe because that's how Oppenheimer dressed. It was that extreme. They literally are the same dimension. And obviously, the time at which I was working, that was a more familiar, trending towards a more familiar cut. But there's something about the rock star. There's something of you know of yeah. the iconic nature of the man that we really needed to get across and needed to embrace, even though it might appear fanciful to people who don't know the real facts, if you like, or haven't seen the real images. But yeah. this this was a, a very a very compelling, charismatic figure.
3: That's amazing because, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about about it formally, but I hadn't made such a connection between the two of them as 20th century icons, I guess. And their
6: trousers, linked yeah. by their trousers. <laughs> <laughs> Iconic trousers of the 20th century, David Bowie and Robert Oppenheimer.
3: <laughs> Together at last. All the kids will be wearing them next year. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, we spoke for the magazine about... Um, The Trinity Test and the lack, the complete lack of CGI. And I I Mm. think, again, I don't want to spoil how you present it Mm. and how it plays out. But I I do want to say that what you do with it um, was surprising to me and unexpected. You know, that we've seen countless explosions in cinema over the years, Mm. and this was not like any of them. And I think the most extraordinary thing for me. Was not even the explosion itself as sort of
6: beautiful as it is. Be careful, no spoilers. The, the, the be res- careful. Is that spoilery? <laughs> it's gonna get. It's about to get spoilery. Okay, <laughs> should we? Should we move on? <laughs> <laughs> Let's not move on because Trinity is is intended to be the showstopper of the film. Yeah, and we always knew that it had to be because it's founded on this this idea that I actually referred to in tenet, um, you know, in dialogue that. Oppenheimer and his fellow lead scientists on the Manhattan Project, in the build up to Trinity, they couldn't completely eliminate the possibility that when they push that button, they'd trigger a chain reaction that would set fire to the atmosphere and destroy all life on Earth. Yeah. And yet they go ahead and push the button. Mm -hmm. It's this incredible moment where the world will never be the same. And so. You're trying to build the tension through all of the pieces of the puzzle, through all of the safety protocols, the switches they throw, the nervous glances between them, the ticking clock, the countdown, the countdown. You're building, 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 and Ludwig's score is getting crazier and crazier. And then what you have to then portray is something that is equal parts beauty and terror. You know, and that's why I didn't want to use CG, because CG feels a little anodyne, a little safe. Yeah, I wanted the images to have bite and reality so they could have threat to them. But you're also looking for a kind of yeah ethereal beauty. I mean, this was a very, very beautiful thing for these scientists to witness. Yeah. Well, you know,
3: I, I won't speak more in the fear of falling into the wrong hole, but um, <laughs> I will say to people... Um, it's it's something to see it really. it's incredible <laughs> something to experience yeah you filmed some scenes in Oppenheimer's house yeah right I wanted to ask about that in terms of how and why that was important but more importantly I think what effect that had on those scenes and on the actors and how how it Absolutely. came across
6: well uh, I mean this is the brilliance of, of filmmaking it's like things come about for the weirdest reasons and, you know, pragmatic reasons. I had wanted Ruth De Jong, the designer, to build Los Alamos fully um, as an interior exterior set. We knew we couldn't film in the real Los Alamos because there's a Starbucks. It's a very, you know, modern-looking town, still a very important nuclear facility. Yeah. So we knew we would have to build the exteriors. I wanted them to all be interiors as well so I could shoot everything in one place and sort of wait for the right weather for certain scenes, you know, whatever. Um, And in the end, we couldn't afford it. And Ruth's solution, which was very brilliant, was well, we'll go to the real Los Alamos, which is an hour up the road mm-hmm. from where we're building our exterior set, and shoot inside
4: mm.
6: whatever interiors are still there. And sure enough, that's Oppenheimer's actual house. that yeah. He lived in for three years. And fuller lodge where these scientists would have their parties, their Christmas party or whatever, you know. Um, and so we filmed on the real places. Um, and that connects you and grounds you in a wonderful way. You know, you've got... Killian Murphy and Emily Blunt walking on the floorboards, the same floorboards. Yeah, that that's that pretty Joplin's spooky for them there, right? I think, I mean, I don't want to speak for them, but certainly my feeling was it, it I think it grounded us. I think it helped us feel connected and yeah. confident that, that we were going to have authority to tell the story, um, you know, that just by yeah. having gone that extra mile in terms of, of, you know, this is not a documentary, it's an interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we're supposed to be doing. But we're connecting with important reality. there. Similarly, you know, we went to the IAS at Princeton, the Institute for Advanced Study, where he was director for years, and we shot in the real place, the real pond out there. Yeah. The office we used there's a little bit of it's a little fanciful because it's not actually Oppenheimer's office; it's Einstein's real office. They had symmetrical offices either end of the building, but wow. unfortunately, from Oppenheimer's one, which has been redecorated in a modern way. You also can't see the pond from there. So we said, you know what, we'll shoot in, in Albert Einstein's real office, which, I mean, what an incredible feeling to, to be there ah. with the actors, just connecting, just feeling his office exactly as it was when, when he was there. And it's it's a magical privilege of of my profession that that I get to to do things like that and experience things that, that a lot of people would really love to.
3: Yeah. Extraordinary experience, which I think comes through on the screen. We've got to wrap up, but thank you so much. That was fascinating as usual. Thank you.
0: All right, it is time for the reviews section and there is only one place to start with an extraordinary character who's had a larger-than-life impact on our world despite being quite short and associated with colour pink. But enough about me. I am, of course, talking about Oppenheimer, you know, because of the whole communist links pink, you see. I'm not not just throwing this together. Alex, tell me more.
3: Yes, Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan has returned and he's made this film which how can anybody on the planet not know so much about this film already it is absolutely huge he has got really gone for has everyone here seen it by the way
1: Mm -hmm. okay
3: so uh, for those who don't know um i don't think there are any of you but the clue is in the title this is his deep deep character study about the genius theoretical physicist who in a race against the Nazis towards the end of World War II was chosen to spearhead the development of uh the atomic bomb in America as as we know. Um
0: and he's played by Killian Murphy,
3: we should say. Is played by Killian Murphy, extraordinarily played by Killian Murphy, who inhabits this fascinating, complex, <coughs> gloomy, um, genius individual. Like. He is a proper oddball.
2: Mm. Oppenheimer, or Oppie, as they often call him in
3: this. <laughs> Real oddbod, bod. Odenheimer. Hey. Um, <laughs> the Germans had split the atom, what, sometime at the end of the 1930s, I think. And um, so America needed to get there first with uh, nuclear weaponry. Um, and this, basically the film for some time is like an origin story of sorts. It's a great little, who is this guy? Where did he come from? What drives him? You see what drives him. You see how obsessed he is with science. You see how he visualizes the science with these now, you know, infamously filmed sequences that did not involve any CGI. Um, And this leads up to the famous uh, Trinity test in which an atom bomb took out large swathes of <clears throat> some land in New Mexico before it was ultimately deployed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, as Nolan has said, he wrote the film in first person as a reminder to everyone making it that this was going to be a very intimate character study and a large part of the film is very much from Oppenheimer's point of view. Um, this is all really fascinating stuff. where You see Oppenheimer finding his feet as a physicist, as a man, as, you know, someone just operating in social circles and scientific circles, sexually grappling with who he is, with this whole situation, wrestling with the weight of it all. And then I, I don't want to give it away. I mean, we, Christopher Nolan and I spoke about this in the interview you've just heard. As he has said, um, he wanted the Trinity test um, to be a showstopper. And it is, Um, and as I alluded to in in the interview, I think it's safe to say that what you might expect to see is not quite how it plays out. It's it's a big explosion, but not like one you've seen, this is not Michael Bay, people, nothing wrong with Michael Bay, but this is not just blowing shit up on screen. (laughs) Um, There's some really, really beautiful stuff in the film, and then there's, you know, it is also very much political drama. There are mm-hmm. a lot of men in rooms talking. So and,
0: many men, so many rooms. Many
3: men. So it was a, many men. It was a different time. Um, it's really, this is Nolan and the film weighing up everything that came with Oppenheimer's story. The implications of it all, the consequences of it all, the morality of it all, the humanity of it all, the lack of humanity about this one man in the middle of it all stuck sort of, cursed with these singular skills he had and the position he's been sort of put in and undeniably it is extraordinary filmmaking i think structurally you know the editing of it all the production design it is awesome stuff the score by ludwig gerson is mm. i mean is so so horribly atmospheric you know yeah. it's mm. such a large part of what this film is it's so I think the score is kind of throughout. Like for three hours, this score is going on. It's so unsettling and so unnerving, and I think it really atmospherically makes this film what it is to a large extent. Um, it is a fac- it is a fascinating film. It is it is also undeniably rather dense. And I think Nolan navigates that with the score and with the crosscut, well not crosscutting, but with the editing, with multiple timelines going on concurrently throughout almost the entire film. It's a lot. It's a whole lot of film. And it's a lot to absorb to the extent that I think when I first, when I came out of it, I was like, I cannot you I didn't have an instinctive response as to it was one thing or another there's so much going on and it's so well done but it is it is a lot to absorb what I will definitely say is that it it is that was over a week ago a week and a half now and it has it's still rattling around my brain there are sequences and just the feel of it that has stayed with me and I want to see it again in IMAX. If you can see I know a lot of yes. people don't have the luxury of being able to see it in IMAX, but if you can, it is really quite the experience. And yeah. I, I do think it further reinforces Nolan's position as as a giant of contemporary filmmaking. You know, however much you might like the film or not, it is mammoth. What a- I mean
0: is it is we should say it's 3 hours 11 mm-hmm. minutes like do be prepared for that when you go in um it is you're a gonna lot. get an
2: icy. Maybe get the small instead of the large, <laughs> Very because wise. you know you're gonna need you're gonna need a. Wheel
0: and there isn't, and and there is, it doesn't genuinely doesn't feel like there's a lot of time to take lubrics breaks because, mm. despite that time frame, yeah. just the enormous number of people in this cast, the enormous span of time that it covers, the enormous weight of what it's trying to cover, there isn't anywhere actually where it's a good time to take a lull break. You know,
1: and it moves at such a lick, like. Mm. A, this sort of each sequence is like barely over a few minutes long like it just yeah whether it's flicking between timelines or going to sort of the stuff that's in his head or um just going to another character's perspective it just it it just feels like just non-stop even though it's so long but it keeps going at that pace and i think the editing is like really great i think it yeah. helps yeah. to keep you really it just locked doesn't,
3: in it doesn't stop moving
0: yeah really we should say that the cinematographer was Hoyt Van Hoytema. Who, yeah. who was the editor on this one?
1: So it was edited by Jennifer Lame, um, right. and just a great job. I think it's one of my sort of favorite elements of the film. Yeah, I will say I
0: still think he's very bad at relationships. I think he's. I think yeah. you can see Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh, who play basically the female characters, um, and uh, and you can see the script you know, really trying to give these women, you know, a character and, and you know, make them stand out and make them stand out from each other and everything else. And still, I was frustrated intensely with, with yeah. anything resembling a relationship scene because I just didn't think, I don't think that is Christopher Nolan's strength as a filmmaker, if I'm honest. And I thought um, one of one of our peers uh, tweeted earlier in the week. You know, the, these are sex scenes. as only Christopher Nolan could have shot them, and I agree, but maybe not for the reasons. He said it. Um, I mean, literally, somebody gets up in the middle of a sex scene to consult a book of Sanskrit at one point.
2: I have to say, that struck me. That felt to me like an SNL sketch of what a Christopher Nolan sex scene would right. be. Right,
0: and, and there it is. So, you know, I I, I did have some issues with it. I, I get from the, the actual history involved, it is going to be... All men in rooms talking. I'm not saying, oh, we should have gender swapped freaking Einstein or something. (laughs) That is not what I'm saying here. I am just saying that when he does acknowledge the presence of the other sex, I don't think he does it super well in his films as a rule. And I maintain that that's the case after this one.
3: I do think they should have gender swapped Einstein. (laughs) Fucking amazing, (laughs) (laughs)
0: Einstein.
3: um, uh, Emily Blunt though is brilliant. In this, film. she is
0: brilliant, and
3: I know what you're saying. I do also think she has she has more to do as the film goes on, and she has some pretty good chewy material mm. to get into at the end.
0: She does, yeah. There is yeah. a there is that 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 scene that we won't talk about anyway. Mm. I, and yeah, we should also say Robert Downey Jr. very very good in this. He plays someone who met Oppenheimer basically post war and has an effect on his career at that point. Um, Matt Damon, I thought, was was a real breath of fresh air as the sort of military liaison for the Manhattan Project. I actually. I, I thought he was—he had a lighter presence. Weirdly, Damon is stories. having more
3: fun than everyone else. In this having film. Loads yeah, of fun. He's
1: having yeah. He's the source of humor in this. Like, the, <laughs> and weirdly, there are jokes in this film. Uh, I would say, um, but yeah, he's very much needed. I think. Um, yeah. In this huge cast, he really stands out.
0: And it is a massive cast. Benny Safdie's Benny in it. Safdie Who
1: have we not? I mean, Dane De Dane De
0: Oh, yeah. He's, he's, Rami mm, Malek. yeah. Casey Affleck, um, Tony oh. Goldwyn, Jason Clarke. What's his name? Jack Little
3: Hans, boy, Hans Solo Boy.
0: Oh, Alden Ehrenreich. Aaron Aaron, right. He's great, actually. Very, he's very really good. good. They're
3: all good. And we haven't seen, Downey is brilliant in it. It is amazing to see him. I mean, it's a big role in this film, mm. and there is no. Tony Starkism in what he's not doing not a single and, bit you know, after 15 years of that it is great to see him doing something so meaty and so different to that again and you realise you know what a brilliant actor he is Not that, not that he wasn't great in those films but you know he's doing something completely different here and he's fantastic in it
0: yeah, we have forgotten people. It was actually Tom Conti. Of course, is actually mm. Albert Einstein. Um, uh, we have Kenneth Branagh in it for a couple of scenes. James Darcy is in it. David Crumholtz actually gets a really plum He's role, great, which is it. lovely He's to fun. see.
3: He's funny. Gary Oldman, folks.
0: Jason Dark. Yeah. Josh Josh Hartnett is very good. Yes, Matthias really Schweighöfer, who is um, really good in a tiny scene. Yeah, you know it's it's packed. It is stacked. Yeah, it's ridiculous.
2: In the interest of a spread of opinions, I've really struggled with this film. I was really looking forward to it. And there were bits of it that I thought were outstanding. I thought Ludwig's score was incredible. I thought the atom bomb sequence was absolutely breathtaking and really spectacular and, and horrifying in, in the ways that it should be. And there was some stuff beyond that where kind of right at the beginning of the film and moments in the last hour where it really got inside Oppenheimer's head that I found incredibly, you know, mm. engaging and mm. was a fascinating kind of way into that character's head.
0: Yeah,
2: uh, But for me, so much of the film I found unengaging. And I don't think Christopher Nolan particularly cracked open this world in a way that is, you know, necessary. I think he takes for granted a lot of prerequisite knowledge and prerequisite interest in some of the wider things that are happening and he makes no concessions to making any of that stuff feel particularly immediate for me in a way that I don't know a vast amount about the history and the, the political background of this and I didn't really for Dunkirk either I didn't know that story particularly but I found it incredibly immediate and engaging and really put you in that situation for this I I I struggled with a lot of the film because I just felt completely on the outside of it. And um, I wish he'd done a little bit more to make it uh, feel a bit more engaging in some of the, the the trial sequences and the um, testimony sequences when it got down to like being in Oppenheimer's head. I think it was fantastic. And I love the kind of scientific physics associated visuals of atoms wobbling about and big, slow-mo explosions and it really does a good job of unpacking the science atoms wobbling about atoms what <laughs> yeah are, you know hear the bits like with the
0: atoms wobbling about they're,
2: they're, they're kind of they're, are they waves are they static that's a particles particles there yeah. we go and, I but, remember some yeah. things from this movie
0: <laughs> I should also say like just you know there are VFX in this movie He's he said there were no entirely CG he said there were no there was no CG but like Dean Egg is, is listed there well, in the no, credits well, he,
3: he, hang on name drop he told me yeah. that the C- <laughs> CGI that is in the film is all about the removal of stuff sure maybe tidying up and cleaning up i think what he's basically saying is there are there are no cgi creations in the film in terms of what you're seeing that's real was made by cgi he's talking about you know removing any barriers to
0: like modern stuff and things yeah Yeah. no i get that but that is still vfx like i i you yeah, know, but he's not. not so he,
3: yeah, but he's not saying there are no VFX in the film. He's saying there are no. You know, he didn't use CGI for any of the stuff that you think might be CGI.
0: That's fair. He didn't. Yeah, he didn't use it for basically the gigantic bomb. But yeah. um,
3: although I think. Uh Killian murphy's entire performance was
0: was was isn't that is actually an ai never showed up no absolutely not
1: (laughs) anyway Uh, Killian was such an engaging core of it i think um i feel like nolan's kind of obsessed with his face right and he Mm. just loves to sort of frame it and we got to see it in imax and it's it's shot in imax and 70 millimeter film and honestly just looking at this it looks divine every frame um i just could look at um, Killian Murphy's face on on film just for three hours. I don't know. It was just the way it was shot. And well, then
3: you, you came to the right. Film. Yeah, I did. I did. I
1: had a, I had a good time because of it. And like it, it moves between aspect ratios as um those different elements are playing out. And um, I think it's it is so subjective. And he's in so much of it is on um Killian Sh- Murphy's shoulders. And I think he does a really yeah great job about a man a character who is hard to grasp I feel like I learned so much about him in that film but then because of the nature of the film and other people giving testimony about him and, and also the way he talks about himself but he, not, he doesn't really commit to any of his decisions in a way and it just you come out of it so knowing more about him but also not quite still, still feeling like you As don't quite be, know I him think, that's but that's great I really like it yeah I really yeah, like yeah, that about it
3: the film is a moral conundrum
1: yeah yeah
0: well we gave this one five stars it's a great
3: review by dan Jolin. i have
0: yeah. to say i mean i'll be honest i personally would take one of those stars and give it to another film we're going to be talking about this week but we'll get to that <laughs> fairly soon um where can we go next but to an alter led biopic of an extraordinary figure who changed the world forever but became obsessed with death along the way i am of course talking about barbie
1: yes Barbie <laughs> It's finally Yay, here Barbie <laughs> yeah, It's finally <laughs>
3: uh, here Decades in the making
1: Yeah And so much pink In the run up Um Yes, so as Alex said if you don't know what's going on in this film then I'm, I i don't know where you've been but um, yeah so this is Greta Gerwig's Barbie Margot Robbie is the iconic doll um, and she is living a very nice life in Barbie land um, there's all kinds of She is of...
2: a Barbie girl in a Barbie world She yeah.
1: is and life is fantastic and in plastic <laughs> um, and She and all the other Barbies around her um, are very happy that they have um, brought such joy and empowerment to womankind. They feel like they've solved the problems for women in the real world by being such a diverse bunch. And in Barbie land, women are in charge. Um, Issa Rae is a president Barbie. Um, Emma Mackey is a... Is she an author, Barbie? A physicist, Barbie. I physicist. Think. I think Alexander Ship is Nobel Prize winner. Barbie. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Um, Harry Neff is a doctor. Yep. Um, there's all the Barbies you could want and more. Dua
2: Lipa is mermaid Barbie. Yeah,
1: three mermaid Barbies. Barbie's going about her life. Um, she has a somewhat boyfriend, I think, in uh, Ryan Gosling's Ken. They're not.
3: He's not a boyfriend. I think.
1: Well, well.
2: He's kind he of thinking, says, will they? She's kind of thinking, won't they? Yeah
1: and you know there's the whole now that we're That's boyfriend girlfriend, girlfriend.
2: Tag there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saving that for like a, a rom-com yeah. where it's like a blank background with a red font and they're kind of leaning against each
1: yeah other. <laughs> <laughs> and she's sort of going about her life uh, she's got great friends she has a great party they all come over they all dance and suddenly she's struck with the question Ben raised earlier do you ever think about dying and um that kind of sets her off on a bit of a path of existential dread and I won't go into the details but essentially as you've seen in the trailer she has to go to the real world to try and figure out what's going on there mm. and um, yeah this is kind of everything you want it to be and more and less in some ways I would say um, <laughs> yeah it's <sort laughs> weirdly of, it's it is it is the of, thing and the parody of the
0: thing at the same time yes
1: it, it very much is um it's incredible Margot Robbie is sensational she was born to play that role and does it in such a, a beautiful way but the standout is Ryan Gosling as Ken whose job is beach just beach not lifeguard beach every single line delivery that Ryan Gosling gave in this film just had me laughing we got to watch it in a packed screening a packed screening It was, it was absolutely nuts in there and he's just hilarious. Um, he was born to do this as well, I think. Um, you've got an incredible other cast, everyone I've said. You've got other Kens, uh, Kingsley Benedia, Shukta Gatwa, Simu um plays a big part in it. Um, and I just had an absolute whale of a time. I don't think I've had a better time in the, yes. in the cinema this year.
0: And, and you know, I, I have seen other great films this year. Spider-Man, great. Yep. You know, even Guardians really loved... This I was euphoric stepping out of this. This yeah. I mean I mean, yes, it had a couple of lines that I think were written expressly for me. Like I think in the script they had a little circle around them and some hearts, and they said for Helen O'Hara. But <laughs> and I
2: can think one of those lines in particular <laughs> comes from a place of there's a certain subset of people that are gonna hate this anyway. Let's just add some fuel to that fire because fuck yeah. it, why not at this why point? Why not? <laughs> and people erupted <laughs> over that line. It was incredible.
0: It was amazing. And and it, it but it is so clever because it is a toy movie and it does yeah. th- make you think, gosh, playing with Barbies looks really fun. But on the other hand, it also points out that Barbies are ridiculous, that Mattel has made huge mistakes in their the Barbie history, that their board is made up entirely of men, that the person who invented Barbie doesn't have a you know, squeaky cling past. Mm. Like It points out all of these crazy things. Um, and so it's kind of having its cake and eating it, but in a way that I was utterly on board with
2: because the thing is that the film is the big pink funny wacky comedy that you were expecting from those trailers right and at the same time i could not believe i could absolutely not believe the like surrealist existential oddity or odyssey and oddity that this film is it is incredibly surreal the actual narrative not that we're going to dig into it here because the trailers actually skirt around it in a big way Mm. the narrative basically flips between being a straight-up plot and then also the subtext of the movie becoming the plot at a certain point, and it flips in and out of those modes on a whim.
0: Yeah.
2: Not not flippantly, but it moves basically just on the demands of the emotion of the character, who is a fictional doll come (laughs) to life. And the fact that it formally throws out so many rules in service of what is going to work to tell this emotional, like, philosophical story that, as you say, is about a Barbie doll in this particular situation that is also about what, why, why does Barbie exist as a concept? What was Barbie invented for? What does Barbie mean now? And what did Barbie mean however many years ago? What are the positive ramifications of Barbie being a thing? What are the negative ramifications of Barbie being a
0: what thing? What does that say about all of us? What does that say about our society? Mm. How does Barbie land reflect us or not reflect us? How mm.
2: does Barbie reflect the personal relationships that we have with the most important people in our lives, or not reflect those things. Uh, the way that it tangled all of that stuff up also into this like wacky off-the-wall comedy where all the Kens are threatening to beach each other off and throwing like big, wacky like, Dua Lipa dance scenes whilst using all the costumes from the archive of decades yeah. of barbie including like really iconic ones and then like silly stupid ones and having fun with it whilst also doing that thing that the lego movie did and said okay let's not just make a film about lego like how do people play with lego how do what is the function of lego when used and as a will play ferrell object is in
5: both from yeah. the real and will world. ferrell
2: is in both as effectively like an evil businessman <laughs> yeah. um and Will Ferrell as well, I think this is the funniest Will Ferrell has been in years, which yeah. makes me so happy because I grew up in like peak Will Ferrell era. But but they've done that thing of going, how do people play with Barbies? What is the play function of Barbie and how do we
0: reflect, reflect that, in the that
2: cinematically? Yeah. Which is itself so smart and it's deploying that before you've even got to any of the wider existential philosophical, it's like a thesis on Feminism and Barbies and representation and mothers and daughters and capitalistic business practices of the last fifteen years in a fucking
3: big wacky pink comedy. Well, it's a, I, it's it's a, a thesis it. on masculinity as well. Yes. As yes. Yeah, very it's much almost so. 50, 50, Completely. It's very much who is Barbie? And Why what does, is Barbie? And what does that How make him? As well, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it, it might it might be the most meta film of all time. Genuinely. Mm. For better or worse.
0: <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's a stunning, stunning job by by Gerwig. I mean, you know, a lot of it obviously deliberately given the kind of artificial sheen of Barbie land and this this crazy creation of Barbie land, which just gave me so much joy in basically every single frame. And and I do recommend looking around the frame especially yeah. as the film goes on. There were some bits that just had me weeping with laughter. Um, but uh, but then also the, the contrast between that and the real world. And to be honest, you know, she doesn't go to sort of, you know, slums or, you know, some terrible part of the real world. Like she's not, it's not sort of piping up the contrast well, for the sake of it.
3: Yeah, the real world in this film is really not the real world at yeah. all. It's a no, just, no, okay, just, just heightened <laughs> in its own way. It, it is. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, Will Ferrell and his gang of corporate, douchebags is i mean it's, that's parody <laughs> as obviously as well
0: well that but mattel is not like the real world but the you know venice beach is that's not yeah on venice beach there
3: there yeah there are bits of it um it is i i will say i felt absolutely bludgeoned by this film um honestly <laughs> it's two hours of hitting you over the head in in the face with its concept again and again and again how much is too much uh this film doesn't care <laughs> it's,
1: <laughs>
3: it's it's a
0: lot
1: it is a but lot. i think it's and the the sort of pinkness of it all like ben says it's kind of m- making fun of that in a way but also that aesthetic is un, for me anyway i think that might be part of why helen felt so euphoric is so joyful like mm. and that's why it's become such a visually uh, you know and how they've marketed it and everything is so has so captured people's attention because you also can't help but feel joy from seeing that kind of setting
0: it's also an aesthetic that has been uh historically Uh, frowned upon, frankly, or or certainly, you know, considered lesser, considered less important, considered less valid, um, because it is so girly. It's kind of, I mean, Emerald Fennell has a small part in this film, but Mm. it's something similar to what she did with Promising Young Woman in that sense, which is almost using the pink as a false flag and sort of, uh, well, false flag and a totally sincere flag at the same time. Mm. It's sort of saying, take this aesthetic seriously. This is also valid as much as the tweeds and the surges of, of you know, um, Oppenheimer are valid. So is this aesthetic. It's mm. just one that has been historically frowned upon.
2: I'd say Turning Red kind of does that as yeah, well in kind bit. of taking those aesthetics of hmm. girlhood, teenage girlhood
0: yeah, and, yeah. and
2: making it into cinematic language. And at the same time, if we're talking about the pops of colour and I think why everybody is really latching on to the pink of Barbie, we are coming off... At least a decade, I'd say, culturally, of just extreme minimalism of mm. black and white, monochromatic, uh, everything gray. If you think of like Mrs. Hinch, you know, <laughs> I don't know why that's come up no on the Empire podcast. About Mrs. Hinch. <laughs> um,
1: but also like big blockbusters being like everyone saying they're dark and all the everything getting darker and the CGI feeling dark. And this is just, there's not one dark scene in this. It's all so beautifully lit and bright and poppy and.
2: And unapologetically colorful, yeah. but as you say, a- a completely about Barbie becoming obsessed with death. Yeah, is just I I can't believe this film got made. <laughs> it's like <the> in <laughs> any other universe, a big summer blockbuster Barbie movie would be the most basic version of that that you could imagine. Yeah. Mm. And it, it could be as much as I had fun with this. It could be the Super Mario Brothers movie, where it's like it's a movie of Super Mario Brothers. The Barbie movie is not that and in there, a way that is just so wild yeah. and daring to me.
0: There are moments where you can see the movie it could have been. There are moments mm. in this where you're like, oh, this is the this is the kind of typical Barbie movie. You know, oh, I know where we're going with this. But every time you think that, it just swerves in a different direction. And I, I just love that for it's it. It's
3: full of surprises right right to the end. I, I will say Rhea Perlman, uh, let's not get into any details mm. about her character, but she's bloody brilliant in this film Mm. and uh, you know that those scenes she was in really got me the film does slow down here and there and when it does and when it does get genuinely sincere uh i think there is a sincerity of in terms of what it's doing what it's saying throughout the whole film Mm. but it's it's covered up in so many layers of irony and meta and aesthetic and everything and when it when it forgets about that and just lets Let's itself be genuinely just simple and genuine. Um, that really worked.
0: Mm.
3: Worked mm. for me. It's a
0: it's a really good ending that may not work for small kids. By the way, yeah.
2: I love How much this whole won't film won't
3: work for small kids?
2: Mm. It is rated twelve. Yeah, and there are one or two gags that I honestly just think will go over kids' heads. It's not mm. like it's inappropriate for kids because I think they just wouldn't understand some of the things that necessarily make it a 12. Mm. At the same time, the focus of it and what the actual film is about, I just I don't know how engaged kids will be
3: with it. And I'm fascinating to see... Well, it does yeah. not at one point pander to children at no. any point in this whole film.
0: No, not small children. I they, think I think sort of seven, eight and up are going to be okay. But They might enjoy it yeah. on a
3: colourful level, but uh, script-wise... God knows.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's true. It's definitely not... Pand- I mean, look, this is a Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach script. So, I, you know, it is a Greta Gerwig, Noah Baumbach script. I mean, it's... I would say it's probably about the level of sort of comprehension-wise of little women, really, mm. right? I mean, in terms of it's accessible, it's generally accessible, it's not sort of swerving off in weird direction. Well it is absolutely swerving off in weird direction, but it's not doing anything completely complicated. Oh, I'm not sure. and l- incomprehensible, of, but it's
3: a lot of the jokes about the patriarchy and the ridiculous things <laughs> that men do you, you I don't know. It's gonna go over a lot of the younger viewers' heads.
1: I think they're still the going to be having fun a, yeah, the, yeah, the kids are more switched on to this stuff than you might think, you know. Yeah. I I I don't know. I was a <laughs> stupid child (laughs) Um, I would say I don't think it would work half as well if the cast weren't so fully committed to Mm. playing it and playing it especially the Barbies and Ken's playing it straight like they're so in it Michael Cera we didn't mention him he's so funny we didn't he plays
0: he, plays he plays Ken's Alan. friend great. Alan and that's the big great. selling point for Alan was that he fit all of Ken's clothes <laughs> <laughs> what what a depressing life Alan
1: has it's oh. like
3: every single cast member was injected with caffeine before each take <laughs> but,
1: but I the think fact that's that just... they're
3: all on the same page
2: yeah. yeah, they're
1: all just having fun and yeah they all yeah sorry go I mean back.
2: that's a, a singularity of vision on Greta Gerwig's yeah. part that it, it's it's not simple what they're doing the levels that they're playing with and the uh, like certain slightly roboticness of being a doll but then the humanity of them being characters and playing into the irony of them being kind of actors playing dolls the fact that they are all on a similar level means that however Greta Gerwig has got those performances she knew exactly what she wanted from every single one of them and Mm. they all completely deliver
0: Mm -hmm. just superb superb work from her well Empire gave this four stars I'd give it one more <coughs> sorry um, Empire gave this four stars and so that is very much a recommendation Barbie is out this week as well finally however we have two films on Netflix that we should look at um, quickly first up is A Tale of Love Life and Disaster which is
1: The Deepest Breath Tell us about this one, Helen. I didn't get a chance to see that. Yeah, this is
0: a, a documentary, basically culled from a lot of footage. Not just that she has shot herself, although there is also a lot of that, of course. But also, you know, competition footage, um, training footage, and so on, taken by all these people who are involved in the sport of free diving. And that is the sport. If you've seen Le Grand Bleu, which I was, um, I just used to love in the nineties. That is the. Uh, it's it's about these people who just hold their breath. And dive super far. And we're talking like 100 metres straight down underwater, which does horrifying things to the body, Mm. I learned from this film, and uh, which you hear all about in detail. Um, Well,
2: like squishing you up.
0: Basically squishing up like vital organs that you don't want to be squished. Why would you
3: do that then?
0: (laughs) Because because it is there, I guess. The ocean is there and people want to
3: knowingly have your organs squished. Because when you get obsessed
2: with Avatar The Way of Water and yeah. you want to go and meet Pyak and the Mighty Tulkun, this is the next best <laughs> this thing. This is the I next best thing. I think it's
3: worth having organs squished for. Well,
0: I mean, look, they don't stay squished once you come back up to the surface. At least that's the hope. Doesn't
3: sound like it's medically...
0: Yeah, advise. well, anyway, this one focuses on um, <laughs> uh, a, a sort of sport diver, a, a competitive diver called Alessia Zacchini, who is uh, an Italian woman, and um, and also on a safety diver, Stephen Keenan. So the, the interesting thing about free diving is that the safety divers also essentially have to be free divers because you can't mm. come back up fast enough if you've got scuba gear on. So they also have to be like holding their breath and diving pretty deep to help the divers get back up
2: do they get any of the glory if they're doing what the other guys
0: are doing they're not going as deep they're just like hanging around waiting to help so um and it sort of becomes a story of their parallel careers developing it becomes a love story at a certain point it also becomes a tragedy at a certain point it is um it's a really affecting film and it is a really fascinating look into this into this world that you haven't seen before it's beautifully edited um, and put together by McGann, obviously. So we don't have an Empire review of this uh, up on the site yet, but I would probably be like somewhere in the high three, low four camp. Like it's not going to, you know, it's not a completely going to change your world kind of documentary. And there are a few, but it is a really well-told story about, you know, these people what, and this sport and and the, the the astonishing things that happen as a result. Okay, finally, we have a novel sci-fi film about featureless human figures in boxes. I am, of course, speaking about They Cloned Tyrone. Very good, Helen. You're I'm on trying. Phone. I'm trying to kind of like link them all up. You know? <laughs> what did you think of this one?
1: Yeah, so I like this a lot. This is um, directed by Duel Taylor. Um, I think it's his feature debut. I believe so, yeah. Um, which is pretty incredible because it's very, very well realised. Um, and it was written by him and Tony Rettenmeyer, And it stars John Boyega as Fontaine, who is um, a drug dealer. And he gets into an ac- encounter with um, Tiana Paris's Yo-Yo, who is a sex worker, and Jamie Foxx, who plays Slick Charles, great character name. Who <laughs> is her pimp essentially.
2: Right up there with motherfucker Jones.
1: It <laughs> <laughs> really is. <laughs> yeah, um, it's very much sort of like black exploitation at this yes, point, right? Yeah. It's really leaning into that a lot. Um, and it does it really well. Um and basically, Fontaine gets killed and then wakes up again. The but, next morning, as normal. Yeah, and uh doesn't really remember that and goes about his life and then but Slick Charles saw this happen and is like, when so when Fontaine comes to visit him again, he's like what are you doing here? I thought you died. And um, that kind of sets the three of them off into an investigation into just what's happened um, and what's going on in their community. And there is a clue in the title as to what might be going there on. There is a big clue. There's also a very, you'll notice some of the characters I mentioned there are called Tyrone. There's a fun reveal about that, um, uh, which I won't go into. And yeah, this is a whole, it's a real mashup of genres. So, um it's very much a comedy. Jamie Foxx is doing some of his best comedic work, I would say, in this. Um, the writing's great and it's really fun. There's a lot of great one-liners and um, Jamie Foxx gets a lot of them. Um it's a sci-fi uh, especially as it gets into kind of the second act and the gang start to uncover what's really happening um there's a bit of horror element it mm. brings something like get out to mind very strongly um some black mirror stuff yes, as well almost lots yeah very much so and um you know it's a mystery because you don't know what's happening and that you watch them uncover it and you're finding out what's going on as well um it's Set in the present day, I believe, or meant to be, but it has a lot of, like, 70s styling about it. Um, The costuming is absolutely... Mm. brilliant um they're all it's all very colourful like deep jewel tones and it looks stunning and it's shot in the really like grainy way which makes it feel old school um it has a really strong like visual style and it's it's really good fun and it get, it's it's sort of concept is really interesting and as it digs into what the mystery is that's all very um I think it's it's really well written as well. It's, mm. It it doesn't it goes somewhere you might expect it to go, but not all the way. Like it has a lo- some surprises in there for you, um, and it gets kind of epic towards the end. And yeah, I I had a really great time mm. with it.
0: There's Some great pop culture jokes, I, which I really enjoyed. Mm. I I struggled a little bit at the beginning just because I couldn't quite hear what anybody was saying, and I don't know if that's just me. But if you're like me, maybe pop on the subtitles Subtit- for the first. I did have subtitles. It's also quite half dark,
1: so. and mm. the intense green of it, which does so well to just dis- make it sort of distinctive, but it does also make it kind of like fuzzy to see at times. So. Yeah. Um,
0: but yeah. it did. But it really picked up for me in the sort of second half. Like I was, I was like, okay, I kind of, I'm kind of into it in the first half. This is interesting. I can see what they're doing. Mm. And then I really started to dig the characters and and get much more caught up in the plot. But um, and that's what Empire thought too. We gave this one four stars. Amon reviewed this for us, and um, yeah, that is four sto- stars for They Clone Tyrone. This is a very strong week at the cinemas. This is very the week so. at the cinemas. people. This is the
3: most is. amount of cinema there's ever been in one week. There so
0: has never been cinema. more cinema. Oh, what a what a time to Be alive, people! Barbenheimer is here at last. (laughs) Bop and hobby, as I saw someone
1: else call it, which really made me laugh. (laughs)
0: <laughs> by the way I'm still tripping on the fact that they actually call him Oppie in the film because that yeah. to me is the name of a Mars rover that is not the right? name of a serious character in a serious Chris Nolan film
1: I brought that up in the office of the day and everyone looked at me like I was absolutely insane that, what, that was his nickname in- I mean yeah, yeah, I'm sure yeah. it was I'm,
0: I'm, I believe because it because I absolutely don't think Chris, Christopher Nolan would have put it in there <laughs> otherwise yeah, <it's> just <laughs>
1: like for the, for the crack let's but call him I,
0: Oppie I still keep tripping on it anyway uh, that is it for this week's Empire podcast join us next week for more film related fun when we'll be joined by some guests that Chris has neglected to tell me who they are, despite me asking several times. But we will, I believe, hopefully have guests, strikes permitting. And if not, we support the strikers anyway, even if that means people don't come and talk to us. Until then, until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it's goodbye from Alex.
3: Goodbye. Um, Me and Sophie are going off to watch horror films and cry together.
0: Yeah, some new therapy. <laughs> it's Goodbye then from Sophie. Bye Barbie. Bye Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> it's goodbye from Ken. I mean Ben.
2: I'm really feeling my Kennergy right now. <laughs> mm. Ken
0: you, Travis.
1: You are Kennerf.
0: I am Kenneth
1: I wonder what Benergy is We'll have to, we'll have to figure oh, that out
0: Terrifying Probably serial killers.
1: Yeah <laughs> <laughs> By the way If they don't sell that tie, it Ryan Gosling at one point Wears like a tie-dye Fluffy hoodie That says <gasps> You are Kenneth on it And I want to I own want, it I need it mm. I need it in I my life I need it
2: Yes Also all the horse-related paraphernalia oh. area He wears yeah.
0: <laughs> No it can't even stop me And it is a toodaloo from me I am off to build An atomic Barbie It'll be too small to see Atom size But really fun for physicists <laughs> it's going <be> great <laughs> thanks everybody bye bye